0: I'm recording, and you can go ahead and I read the thing. I will go
1: ahead and read the thing. Just before three o'clock in the morning outside of the small town of Vaughn, Mississippi, the railway station was experiencing a minor traffic jam. The station's siding was full as crews worked to sort out two southbound freight trains, one of which required minor maintenance and a northbound express. Together, those three trains occupied every inch of the siding and then some. The last three cars and caboose didn't fit at all and had to wait on the main track. On a normal night, the conductor assured the few passengers who were awake enough to ask that might be a problem, but tonight, the next train, the legendary Cannonball Express, was running an hour and a half late, and it would only take a few minutes to fix the problem, a jammed air brake on the southbound freight, but just for safety's sake, they'd send a flagman with a lantern and signal gun a mile up the track in either direction to stop any oncoming traffic. It was a foggy night, and the crew's work was made more difficult by poor visibility. The crews worked on uneasily muttering to one another. Conductors could assure passengers about the safety protocols of the modern American railroad all they wanted. The rounders and mechanics who worked on the engines knew the dirtier, bloodier, and far more dangerous side of the industry. Sure, the Cannonball Express was delayed, and the flagman was probably sober, but anything could happen, and the men trying to unlock the air brake knew it. When the track under their boots began to tremble, the work crew raised their lanterns high and peered into the fog. Suddenly, the lights of engine 382 appeared around the curve, and the train's whistle began to sound in an ear-splitting shriek. 382 was coming into Vaughn fast, much too fast. As the crew scrambled up the siding at a run, the locomotive was upon them so suddenly they barely had time to get clear before it plowed into the caboose and flung two of the boxcars aside, splintering both with an unholy roar and flinging hay bales, sacks of corn, and bundles of lumber into the air. The passengers, a few cars forward on the siding, were awakened to the shriek of metal against metal and jolted severely to the left and then forward before the cars came to a stop. Miraculously, they were still upright and on the track. The same could not be said for engine 382, which the impact had flipped upside down and flung into a nearby embankment. The mail cars behind it had broken free and were askew on the track, but its passenger cars, like those on the siding ahead, remained upright, with some passengers even sleeping through the wreck. Somehow the engineer, John Luther Casey Jones of Memphis, Tennessee, had managed to slow the train just in time to save the dozens of people ahead and behind him, losing his own life in the process.
0: Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, chair of the Historical Trainwreck Department here at Relative Disasters University.
1: And I'm her brother Greg, head of the Railway Timekeeping Department here at Relative Disasters Incorporated.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg today we're gonna to be taking a look at the Casey Jones train crash of 1900
1: this is a uh, this is an interesting one because it's one of those ones that we all sort of know about it from folklore right
0: don't we? and this is a really interesting case study if you want to look at like American folk heroes uh, the story of Casey Jones yeah. just has a lot of facets there's the yep. historical record which we'll be focusing on. But we also know Casey Jones as a folk hero and a cautionary tale and an example of all kinds of different things like self-sacrifice, workplace safety. Yep. He's been yep. kind of mythologized in a really peculiar way. Yeah. Uh, and there are certain aspects of his life and the accident that set them both apart from the typical kind of turn of the century train wreck of which, I don't know if you knew this, there are a disturbingly high amount, yes. uh, most with a much higher body count. Yeah. So in 1900, the year of Casey's wreck, aside from him, an additional 2,500 railroad employees are killed or injured across the U.S. Oh, my
1: gosh.
0: Yeah. It's a really dangerous business. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Yeah. I don't know why, but Casey Jones saw trains at a young age and was like, that's it. That's what I want to do.
1: I get that. I think we all have those sort of formative moments.
0: Casey Jones is born John Luther Jones somewhere in Missouri, and we think 1863, but maybe 1864. Okay. Uh, He's the oldest of five kids, and he's obsessed with trains from early childhood. Like many older siblings, uh, myself included, (laughs) he has his life completely together and organized. Yep. Yep. So he's obsessed with trains, so are his three younger brothers, who all go on to become railroad engineers. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, he really starts a dynasty with this. Cool. So in 1870, John Luther Jones's dad, who's a school teacher, gets a job in Casey, Kentucky, and packs up the whole family and moves them to town. Now, this is the first time they're living, like, in a town right. near a railroad track. Uh, and presumably, John Luther is in seventh heaven. He starts spending all his free time hanging out at the water tower on the tracks. Watching trains come and go. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fun, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it actually, it really does.
0: One day he decides he's done with school. He is 15 years old at this point. Okay. And he asks one of the engineers if he can ride to Columbus to see about getting a job at the train yard. As you do.
1: Yep, as you
0: do. <laughs> uh, they agree to take him. Off he goes. Now, he's not running away. No. Um, he's been Grinding his parents down about the railroad stuff for just years. He's
1: uh, acquiring gainful employment. He's not running away.
0: Right, and his family is lower middle class, yeah. and they're struggling. So in a way, it's better for him to be out earning money than, than it is to have him at home. Yeah, food.
1: yeah. So he,
0: which having fed a teenage boy, I can one hundred percent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Agree. Good God. So that's Columbus, <laughs> Kentucky. Just to be clear. And he's, yes. and he's working uh, now for the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. Right. Cool.
0: And his first job is not very exciting. He is a telegraph gopher. Cool.
1: Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. And apparently when
0: he joins, there are, are a number of John Joneses and Luther Joneses working there. Okay. So he goes starts going by Casey cool. after his hometown.
1: Cool, cool, cool. I love it.
0: Casey really thrives. He lives there with the guys. And in a few months, he becomes a telegraph operator. And this is where he really starts understanding how intricate the railroad really is at this point. So this is pre-telephone. Yeah. So the telegraph operators at Columbus are responsible for maintaining schedules, reporting departures, transfers, arrivals, handling freight exchanges, making sure that trains are moving in the right direction. They have clear orders. It sounded honestly a little bit like air traffic control to me.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: Uh, With the added pressure of having to be really fast at Morse code. Right. And uh, Casey does really well. He learns Morse code. He becomes really fast. And because he's so young, a couple of the administrators at the station kind of take him under their wing and make sure that he spends his free time playing baseball
1: yes that i knew
0: he loved baseball he's still in touch with his families he's very concerned with setting a good example so his brothers can come work with him someday nice so he kind of stays on the straight and narrow through his adolescence he saves his money he becomes a lifelong teetotaler and even though columbus is really rough at this time he just he never gets in trouble that's cool he seems to be just one of those people like many older siblings uh, (laughs) myself included (laughs)
1: <laughs> Who never makes any mistakes and does everything correct. Who never
0: make any mistakes yep. and never get in trouble. Yet. Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. I've, okay. That's been my experience as well, yes.
0: So after two years as a telegraph operator, Casey finally stops growing, and he turns out to be very, very tall. He's 6'4". And remember, wow. this is 1900. Yeah. When many people are not 6'4". Yeah. He's a giant. And because he's so big, his bosses at the M and O start talking about putting him to work on the trains. Nice, course, which he is, he is, is what he wants. About. Yeah, exactly. right. Now he's still a minor at this point, so he has to get special permission <laughs> from his parents <laughs> to take the worst of all train jobs—the brake man. The brake
1: man. Yep. Yes. Oh.
0: Uh, only he's not a man yet. He's still a child. So he's a brake child. He's a giant child. Yep. And he is, because at this time, the trains that he would be working on were braked car by car uh, from the roof. Okay. So the brake man's job, or the brake child, has to ride in the caboose (laughs) and operate the individual brakes from the tops of each car. Now, try to imagine in the dark, in the rain, in the snow.
1: Oh, my It's
0: It's like filthy, difficult, dangerous work. And aside from the brakes, he's also responsible for like checking the couplings, throwing the switchings. Wow. So basically, every job that needs to be done on the outside of the train.
1: Wow! So yeah,
0: he gets special permission from his parents to do this as a seventeen-year-old.
1: You know, this is this is before labor laws were a thing. So, which uh, and you know, <laughs> which will factor into this story somewhat.
0: <laughs> this is maybe why we have labor laws. Yeah,
1: gosh. Okay.
0: So the reason why he's getting pushed from the telegraph office onto trains is because the railroad is getting busier than ever. At this point, commercial rail is just booming. And this particular line, which concentrates on bringing trade goods up from the Port of Mobile in Alabama and grain down from central Ohio, uh, as well as like passengers and mail both ways, they're really struggling to keep up with the business. Okay. So at the time Casey Jones starts working as a child break assistant, he's expected to work. 36 hour shifts and the whole crew is concentrating like every decision they make during the day is focused on making their scheduled stops and departures right
1: your your life revolves around this schedule and being on time yeah
0: so at this time he is living in jackson mississippi at a boarding house run by the brady family okay and at some point after he becomes a brakeman and figures his career is off to a great start he falls in love with Janie Brady, the daughter of his boarding house family, and he decides he's going to marry her. Aww. I know, it's it's very sweet. But this is the part where he starts pushing really hard to get off the brakes and into the engine okay. uh, as a fireman, which is slightly safer. <laughs> Your mileage may vary with that. And by 1882, the M&O extends the line up into Cairo, Illinois, okay. and he finally gets a chance to start learning how to be a fireman. Now, that's the position where you ride in the engine and shovel coal, coal into the, into fire the firebox. Yep. Right. To make the train go.
1: <laughs> that's the technical our special term. guest
0: star <laughs> shared with me. <laughs> Did you know, this blew my mind, a steam engine needs 200 pounds of coal to run at top speed for one hour.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you
0: imagine shoveling that?
1: I know. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, the amount of work, not to mention the amount of... of storage that you had to have specifically just to keep the train running. I mean, it would be the equivalent of trying to refuel a tractor trailer as you're going down the highway at 70 miles an hour with it, but the gas tank only holds two gallons at a time.
0: And it's on fire.
1: And it's on fire, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not forget the fire. The fireman job while... You know, safer than the brakeman job is still a dangerous job. Firemen would get injured all the time on this.
0: So he's a fireman. He's in love with Janie Brady, and he has an idea. <laughs> he decides he's going to get baptized as a Roman Catholic because the Bradys are Catholic, and he thinks sure. Janie will marry him if he's baptized.
1: I mean, there's better odds of her marrying him if if he is than if he isn't. Let's, right, uh, especially at the time. Let's put it that way.
0: Uh, he becomes baptized. Uh, he becomes a fireman, and sure enough, he and Jane get married in 1886. Okay. Now, two things happen almost immediately. The first is an outbreak of yellow fever that kills off a number of railroad workers.
1: I was going to say, yeah, 1887, It was fever. a bad year. Yeah. Bad year for yellow fever.
0: Uh, and the second is the banana business. Yes. Now, the M&O has nothing to do with bananas, but the Illinois Central Line, their competitor, is using yep. its position. They're coming from the port of New Orleans, and they're cornering the banana transit market.
1: <laughs> I mean, people like bananas. This is a big deal. This is a, it, it sounds silly now, but this was a huge deal.
0: Like, at this time, they're supplying most of the U.S. with bananas.
1: And bananas are a slightly exotic but still affordable treat right now. It's like being able to buy you know ice cream whenever you want it.
0: Right. It's delicious. Yeah. Uh, so the two things together, the more freight business and fewer engineers, means that Casey has a shot at becoming an engineer if he applies for work at the competing line, the Illinois Central Company. Okay. So he's undecided until he is involved in a bridge collapse on Pipe Creek in 1887. Oh, where my Where he what? loses the whole train.
1: Oh, my God.
0: So he's he's running a freight train. <laughs> Uh, all the cars, plus the tender, end up in the water, the coal tender, which is directly behind the engine. So he gets yeah. the engine across the bridge and everything else falls in the water.
1: Oh, my God.
0: So no one's hurt. He barely makes it across the bridge. This incident, plus the bananas, plus the yellow fever, have him switching to the IC in 1888, where he is promoted two years later at the age of
1: 25. To being an engineer.
0: finally a train engineer. Yep.
1: Amazing. Hey, set a, set a goal. Go for it. That's what you do now i I had read during the research on this that uh he was really like the people who worked with him really liked him
0: so he did seems you run like that? yeah he seems it's he's unusual for a couple of reasons but everybody
1: <laughs> he's not a drunk <laughs>
0: no and that's really unusual actually it, at it this, really time is. In this business yeah. he was like the only person who did not drink, which you know I can't I can't stress enough how incredibly stressful, dangerous, and awful this job was. And it makes sense that there was a really high rate of alcohol use. Yeah. Uh, But Casey decided he wasn't going to drink as a teenager, and he never started drinking. Good for him. So he's sober. He's really reliable and responsible. He's known for getting his train in on time. He's known for being pleasant to work with. You can kind of see in his biography that he's just a likable person. People, People like working with him. He seems like he, a nice person. He seems like a I don't decent know. guy. <laughs> he, seems he seems like a decent he, guy. He, he, and you would think this actually segues really well into our next point. Um, you have a picture in your head of Casey Jones as this sober, kind of reliable, responsible person. So you would think he would be running his engine safely and responsibly, obeying the speed limit, etc. Oh, no,
1: no, 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 That's not that the case. No, Casey no, Jones no. loves no. to speed. And And... It's not just that Casey Jones loves to speed. It's that speeding is an all-but-written requirement of the job. Right. For a piece of important context, we're talking about the late—I mean, right now we're up to, you know, 1880, 1890s. Mm-hmm. At this time, the literal time, what time it was in the United States, was set by the railways. Right. as as people traveled by train you would see you know engineers hop out at stations and compare pocket watches to ensure that they were having the same time and then you know the towns would set their clocks by the trains and being on time was not just a point of pride it was the way things were done and if you If you were a little bit behind, you did whatever you had to do to make up that time. And Casey Jones was famous for doing that.
0: Well, Casey Jones was famous for never being late. He is a speed demon. He is incredibly proud of his record times. So he's in charge of a route called the Irish Mail. He somehow gets this train up to speeds of over 100 miles an hour.
1: Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) And he sets all these records for having the fastest express train in and out of these stations. Wow. Uh, He is incredibly proud of those record times. He is also reprimanded nine times in the next ten years. Although, to be fair, his speeding habit never injures or kills anyone. Yeah. The worst accident is when his brakes fail at a station in Toon, Tennessee. And he has to slow down by putting the engine in reverse and adding (laughs) just enough steam so the wheels
1: don't lock up. Oh, my God. Okay, that's a genius move, though. Like, you've got to give the guy credit for being smart enough to figure something like that out, right? Right. Like, like Yeah, this of is course. A, he's he's kind of a he's kind of a railroad savant. He really knows how the trains work. And that's right. the important part of you know, everything that happens from here on out.
0: Right. Uh in this case he is not able to stop the train in time and it slams into the back of a parked train, destroying the caboose and jolting the passenger cars. No one is injured or killed, but a clergyman passenger loses his Bible and sues oh, no. the Illinois Central for damages and wins.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, $1,200, enough. which
0: was not small that's,
1: change. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a bit of money.
0: Hang on to those Bibles. Uh, it's, there's reprimand, but Casey keeps his job because he is, again, incredibly good at going <laughs> fast. Yeah. Did you read about the World's Fair?
1: I did read about the World's Fair. So the the 1893 World's Fair exposition in in Chicago, Illinois, I see is charged with... They're bringing the commuters in to the fairgrounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're running essentially a passenger shuttle. And he, you know, he basically turns it into a little in-town vacation with his wife. She, uh, I believe... Rides illegally in the engine with him (gasps) as he's just bringing people from, uh, Van Buren street to Jackson park during the exposition.
0: That sounds so nice.
1: He's just shuttling people back and forth in a train. It's amazing.
0: And he really like, he decides, I think he decides at this point that he wants to be a passenger engineer. He's been hauling freight this whole time, but this is where we really see him like getting into the passenger schedules.
1: Okay, so at this point, we're going to bring in Relative Disaster University's professor of railroadology, uh,
2: our father, Chris. Ferro-equinology is the correct term. And here we go. <laughs>
1: okay, so the reason that we're bringing you in is because we're doing a train disaster this week. We're talking about the Casey Jones wreck of 1900, mm. and... Uh, What we need is your expert analysis here on a couple of things. First of all, uh, we want to talk about the culture of the railroads at the time. Specifically, we want to talk about
2: how important it was to keep the schedule. Oh, yeah. That was probably the uh, most important thing that that railroads did. Railroads, of course, run on tracks. It's, you know... (laughs) A lot of people don't understand that, and um, um, they can't go off road. Then, yeah, you know, you know, it's hard to drive drive around them, you know. Yeah. Or, or if one breaks down, it's kind of hard to uh, get a wrecker in and so forth. So, because they travel on tracks, they have to travel on schedules, right? And it's extremely important that those schedules be maintained. In fact, our whole—I'm sure you you already know this—but our whole concept of time was largely uh, driven by the railroads. Yeah. um, Because it was extremely important to run on time because a train had to get into a station at a certain time. Right. Now, that said, there's any number of things that can go wrong that can mess that up. Yeah. Very often an engineer might get a train that was running late. Okay. And management expected the engineer to... Make up the time. Make up the time. Bring that train in on time. Jeez, and uh, so that's a lot of pressure on the well, engineers. And it and it was always it was usually possible because engineers usually ran on the same lines. In many cases, they had the same engines. Okay, and so uh, they knew what their engines could do, right. and they knew when to slow down for a curve, when there might be a grade that's going to slow them down. So they knew how to make up time because they knew oh, the Oh, they certainly did, yeah. Okay. yeah, because they were very familiar with the machinery and the, and the landscape. Okay. Of course, the problem that you get into is more in the, in the line of another aspect of this, which is dispatching. Okay. In order to keep that line fluid, the dispatcher had to stop trains at certain points so that other trains could pass around them. Okay. And things of that nature. Most, most railroads in this time were running pretty much on, on a single track. Okay. So to get a train around each other, you had passing sightings right. along, the, along right. the way. So uh, an engineer conductor receives their orders. They know that they've got to stop at a certain station and wait for a train to go by or have another train stop and wait for them to go by okay. and so forth. And this, this was done largely by telegraph. Right. But there were no, no radios, no cell phones or anything of that nature. Right, right. So that if something on the line wasn't working the way the dispatcher thought it was working uh, it There's, was up to the local crews to figure it out okay when they, when they and how to solve the problems okay and and that didn't always work as we see in this case it did not uh, in, in this case uh, Jones had orders first of all Jones had a train that had a priority over the other trains on the line. Okay. It, was, it was a superior train. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so any trains that were coming toward him would have to pull onto the siding and wait for him to go by. So he basically had permission <clears throat> to bypass anybody else on the line? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, actually, what it is is that the other trains had, had the orders to stop and let right. this guy go by. Okay. So that was fine, except the orders were that he was going to meet a train at on Mississippi right and uh, and of course uh, when he actually got there discovered that that train was not sitting on the siding because it was too long it couldn't fit on the siding the train was was fouling the switches right exactly it was siding. it was on the it was on the it was on the track and it should not have been yeah the point was that Jones the way his orders read He believed, or came to believe, that this train would be sitting on the siding and all he had to do was just zoom on through. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why he was going as fast as he was going when he entered into that siding.
1: Yeah.
2: Now, the usual way that you handle a situation like this is what's called a saw-by or a seesaw, depending on which railroad. Okay. And that's where the superior train has to stop, stays on the main line, the train that's blocking the siding, then moves thereby allowing the superior train to go on its way. But the point is yeah. that Jones believed, probably because of his, his orders, yeah. that he was just going to zip on through. Right. And when the train that he was passing realized that they were, they were fouling the switch, yeah. they dispatched what is called a flagman right. to go up the track. And as I understand it, he went up the better part of a mile yeah, uh, and set what are called torpedoes, torpedoes right? yes the torpedoes on the line and uh and he wouldn't have had a flag because it was night he would have had a lantern right and it, and it was also extremely foggy and she got pretty foggy yeah you know the grade is relatively flat yeah. So uh, Jones was going at a pretty good clip. Yeah, he was going about seventy-five miles an hour when he went when he went through there. Also, I think it it might be worthy of note too to talk a little bit about the basic how a steam engine works. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you got a firebox yep. where, you, where you're burning fuel, which uh, was usually coal. Right. In those days, it was probably bituminous coal. Okay. It creates a really hot fire. Yep. In back of it are a bunch of flues through which the heat passes yep. surrounding the flues or the water that's in the boiler. The flues heat up the water, yep. which creates, and because it's in a boiler, there's a certain amount of pressure that's right. generated depending on what kind of locomotive you're talking about. On the top of the locomotive are two domes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is usually a sand dome, which is uh, for sand, for which gets sprayed on the tracks if you're not if you're start to, your wheels start to slip. Okay. But the second one is a steam dome, And inside the steam dome is the throttle. Yeah. Okay. the engineer opens the throttle. That allows the steam to go out into the cylinders on the front end of the locomotive. And uh, that pushes back the pistons. Okay. That makes it, is what makes it go. Uh, When the steam loses its pressure, it's exhausted out through the stack, which is why steam engines go chug, chug, chug. Okay. All right. So... (laughs) The thing about the throttle is that you can open that throttle up. Yeah. And you can get that engine going very fast. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because it's basically a I don't want to call it a perpetual motion machine, but sure. But basically the only thing that's really limiting the speed of the locomotive is the engineer's cojones for one thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or the grade. Right. That you have going up. Right. Uh, and the curves. You have to slow down for curves. So it's largely the friction of the wheels on the track. It's is, vir- virtually frictionless.
1: Right. Exactly. So, so you've got a very, very, uh, once you get the impetus going, it's hard to stop. And you can get going very fast. Yeah.
2: It, cool. it, it, it they're hard to stop yeah you know uh,
1: <laughs> several thousand tons of steel
2: is hard yeah, to stop oh. yeah and um, yeah <laughs> and and the, the point of contact um, between the wheels and the rail is really quite small it's about, right. it's about the size of a quarter yeah so the point is that he's he's running a light train yeah and a locomotive once you get it rolling and that's another another yep. issue because steamers take quite a while to get the train rolling sure um, but once you get that thing rolling, the sky's the limit. Sure. If you've got good track, yep. it's flat, you don't have a whole lot of curves, and, and you, you don't have full any grade, steam. and uh, going through the Mississippi Delta, I'm sure they, they had grades that they needed to get up every once in a while, right, but right. basically it's it's pretty flat. Yeah. So yeah, uh, off he went, and um, uh, the machine had the, had the potential to run quite fast. Yeah. The problem is there was something on the tracks. Yeah exactly so i guess
1: the other big question we have for you is (laughs) the end of the story when he actually crashed all all accounts had him going about 75 miles an hour before they realized there was a problem and only going 35 miles an hour when he actually hit Mm -hmm. that entire time span was about 30 seconds how did he do that Oh, very easily. I know you can slam on the
2: brakes, but it doesn't... Uh, no, actually, you don't slam on the brakes right. on the train. <laughs> uh, quite the opposite. I'm reasonably certain that uh, by that time, the uh, almost all of the major trains running in the country uh, had what were known as Westinghouse air brakes. Okay. And the way a Westinghouse air brake works is that you pump air into the cylinders of the thing, which releases the brakes it's it's kind okay. of opposite of the way an automobile is in an sure. automobile your brakes are, are not engaged until you step on the pedal okay with a locomotive the brakes are engaged until you release them okay okay so the brakes are released you have two brakes on a, on a train you've got a brake for the engine yep. and you've got a brake for the train okay You also have what is called a Johnson bar, which is what causes the train to shift from moving forward to moving backwards. So it's like throwing it into reverse? Yeah, basically. It's it's a reverse gear. So I think what Jones did was, first of all, to dump the air, as the expression goes, which means you... Shut off both the train brake and the engine brake. Okay, all of the air goes out of the system. The brakes engage. Okay, at this point you're pretty much sliding along the tracks. At right. that point, it, horrible squealing noises. Yeah, and white lots of middle. sparks and yep. other things. Throwing the Johnson bar reverses the drive wheels. Okay, so they will go backwards until you run out of steam. Okay, and then basically you're just you're just waiting for the inertia, so to speak, to re-engage. So, so doing both of those things at once could, in thirty seconds, slow a, a massive frame sure. down from seventy-five to. 30. That's you know basically all an engineer can do. Can do in those situations, uh, okay. and and this is true to this day. That basically all an engineer can do is dump the air and hope for the best. Wow. Yeah. So he's got the engine shut off. Yep. And he's got the brakes, he's literally sliding along along the tracks. But still, at that speed, it would probably take the length of the train yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I think at around 40 miles an hour, it takes the length of the train to slow you down okay. or just to stop, to actually come to a stop. Right. If you're going faster than that, it's going to take that much more time. And he just ran out of time and track. And yeah. He probably didn't realize anything was up until he was probably, what, a half a mile from, from the scene. Yeah, visual distance was what they had. Also, among engineers, there was, there was a certain amount of fatalism because in a steamer where you've got, you know, you're basically sitting on the boiler. Yeah. If, if you get into trouble, there's no way you're going to survive the wreck because right. it's going to explode and it's going to scald you. To yeah. death, yeah. To death. It's just kind of like sailors that never learn how to swim because they know if they fall overboard, they're dead. There's so, no point anyway. Yeah. Sure. So. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's just a fascinating
1: piece of engineering all of these pieces of mechanical engineering have to come together to make a machine that can use steam to travel incredibly fast and incredibly far, and still have the ability to crash like that Mm-hmm. And not kill anybody but himself. Like, that's impressive. None of the passengers
2: were killed. His, well, he, even, he yelled to get his, his firemen out of the way. And, but there were many other instances where passengers were killed. And oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest problems you had was that most of the, most of the cars back then were made out of wood. Right, and so, so they would shatter on impact. Uh, no, they wouldn't shatter. They would. They would do what's called telescoping. They would literally oh, climb God. into each other. Oh God! And that's how most of the fatalities occurred. The second way that, that fatalities occurred would be a lot of them had coal stoves sure. for heat and okay, so kerosene lamps burst into flames. And of these things would go it. all over the place and set them on fire. So fire and telescoping were the two biggest causes of that. God, that's a nightmarish. Yeah. Because you'd think it would be in, the impact that kills you. And it's like, no, 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 you're still alive when you're burned to death. Yeah, yeah that's exact, horrifying. Yeah, you know, you know, in fact, some of the worst train wrecks in the country were caused by fire rather than, than actual Than impact. the impact. Yeah. Okay, wow. The other thing, too, is that design of steam locomotives uh, had greatly improved since the Civil War. Right. They were relatively slow machines until... Probably the late 1880s, they should when they started uh, going much faster. Yeah, so the first mile a minute train occurred sometime in the 1890s uh, on the on the uh, New York Central. Okay. And what was happening was that they were fooling around with the size and number of drive wheels. Okay. Trying to make boilers that would increase pressure. Okay. And. Uh, by the time you get to the 1920s, which is referred to as the era of super steam, right? These locomotives were tremendously powerful, right. uh, and ready to go. So all of this development was taking place during during Jones's time. Sure. And he was uh, his locomotive was what was known as a ten wheeler. Yep. Which was a great advance over many of the others. The yep. other the other important one back then was the Atlantic, which only had four drive wheels. Uh, okay. But uh, could go very fast as well. And was that just a difference in the, the boiler design? or in Boiler design, uh, the size of the drive wheels, uh, okay. the taller the drive wheel, generally speaking, the taller the drive wheel, the faster you can go, Okay, uh, which, you know, again, it has a lot to do with the physics of, of how these right. things work. That's amazing. Do you have any other thoughts about this this particular crash or train crashes well, in general? or? You know, I'm sure as you've, you've probably elsewhere talked about, Jones was, uh, he was a hot operator. He was a speed demon. Cause as I said seen. earlier, management wanted the trains to run on time. So how severe and, was that policy? Like
1: if you didn't get the train
2: on in on time, was that it? You were fired? No, 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 not okay. at all. But y- you certainly have to explain yourself. Sure. Uh, and very often the conductor and the uh, and the engineer, the conductor is actually the guy who runs the train. Right. And uh, the engineer is runs the locomotive. Uh, they would be called in by their supervisor, and sure. and they had to have a pretty good excuse. Okay. Uh, it better not be that somebody was asleep and missed the train, you know, yep. that that kind yep. of thing. Um, but if a if a supervisor caught you speeding, yeah, uh, or doing something that was unsafe, you could be fined, you could be fired, you could. Uh, and and Jones had his share of of citations he did did. but i think the the one thing you got to remember too is that we had a lot of these train wrecks back then they were very common and the reason that casey jones stands out is because of the song yeah Yeah. so the thing that jumps out to me
1: is that engineers are really in a very tough spot because they're expected to get there on time Mm -hmm. but they can also be called to the carpet for going too fast Mm -hmm. so if you if you go too fast to get there on time you're in trouble and if you don't go fast enough to get, so you don't get there on time, you get in trouble. Yep. So what were they supposed to do? I mean, most and, of them... And, was there a policy of, like, the supervisors would just look the other way if they were
2: going fast or something? Or, no? No, generally speaking, not. Okay. No, they, uh, they would get after you if they caught you. If they caught you. Yeah. But they was, had to catch you first. Yeah, they had to catch you. And first. they had to want to catch you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes that, sense. Yeah, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today and... That's going to offer us some expert analysis that we can then put in with our own uh, uninformed opinions and research.
0: So the Cannonball Express is the fastest way to get express mail and passengers from Chicago to New Orleans. And if you think about like the way the country is opening up at this time, it's just like yeah. dazzling speeds. So the route is broken oh, into yeah. four parts and... Casey ends up being promoted into an engineer position at the Memphis Canton part of the Cannonball Express. so that's right in the middle. Uh, yep. So he moves to Memphis yep. with his family. By now he and Janie have three kids. So he comes off a late shift in gosh 11:30 at night uh, yeah. in Memphis and he realizes when he goes to clock out that the engineer coming in for the next shift has phoned in sick and they ask him if he wants to do one more run. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, And he agrees. Yeah. Cause why wouldn't he? He loves driving trains. So
0: they send him and his fireman, Simeon T Webb back into the train. They hook it up. He thinks at this point, this train is, I want to say, seventy-five minutes late.
1: Yeah, it was supposed to leave at around um, eleven forty-five, and it was nearly one in the morning by the that time makes they sense. left. Yeah, because because the number one engine that was, you know, the one he was trying mm-hmm. to take down was late arriving. So he's seventy-five minutes back. He needs to make up seventy-five minutes. And the weather was good. They had a light train. Right. They had a I fast I think as soon engine. as they
0: hand him the list of six cars that he's pulling, he thinks to himself, all right, we can do this.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can make up this And he time knows this problem. route.
0: He's been driving this route for a long time. He knows every single twist and turn. Yeah. He knows where he can speed up, where he can slow down. He knows exactly how fast he can go. And he's worked with yep. SimWeb before, and he knows that Sim is also really fast. And competent. Yeah. Okay. So they head out. They stop twice for water. And he is planning to zip right through Vaughn, the station. He's not, he doesn't have a scheduled stop there. So when he comes around that corner, uh, okay, sorry, let me back up a little bit. He misses a flagman and a flag signal.
1: And he misses it because of the fog. Let's let's be clear about that. It's not he wasn't looking. It's that there's there's no. They were saying, one of the sources that I had was basically like visibility was poor. Yeah.
0: So Sim Webb, when he talks about this afterwards, mentions a couple times that Casey was so tired he could see the whites of his eyes.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: He doesn't say that Casey is not. He doesn't say that he's falling asleep or anything, but he makes it sound a little bit like they had just been up for so long. They were so tired. They knew this route so well that he maybe wasn't paying attention the way he would have during the daytime or he would have with a little more sleep.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, So they miss the flagman and they are heading at top speed through Vaughn because this is straight track once they come around that hill.
1: And just to put this in perspective, top speed at this moment in time is about 75 right. miles an hour.
0: Sim Webb spots the red lights from the caboose, which is parked ahead of them, blocking the main line. He yells to Casey, there's something in the train. There's something stopping up ahead. And yep. Casey says, jump, Sim, jump. Sim Webb does not hesitate here. Yep. He knows what's going to happen. Yeah. He jumps out he the door, jumps. he falls down the embankment, and he is knocked out. A few seconds yeah. later is when the crash yeah. occurs.
1: In the, in the circumstances of the crash, because this is, this is one of the interesting things of, of being able to actually recreate this, uh, essentially what Jones did was reverse the throttle and slam the air brakes on into the emergency stop position, which is not going to stop the train, and he knows this. Uh, he, he knows trains well enough. He does get do it this. to slow
0: down. Uh, when the impact occurs, he does. he's only. He knows
1: he's not going to stop it. He's only going about 35. So that's pretty yeah.
0: amazing. He takes half a mile to slow a train going that fast to that speed, which is really impressive.
1: And so he, he has the time to do that and one other thing, which is sound right. his whistle. Now, little sidebar we on have the not talked about the
0: whistle. whistle. Have at it.
1: The whistle mm-hmm. is awesome. He had a custom-made whistle. It was six thin steel tubes sort of bound together in like a circle, the shortest being half the length of the longest, okay? So what this did is when you sounded this whistle, it would scream, but it would scream in sort of a rising pitch, almost like a siren, Mm -hmm. and then just die away. And people who heard it described it as a, quote, sort of whippoorwill mm-hmm. call, quote, or, quote, like the war cry of a Viking, wow. end quote. Those
0: two things are um, not the same. Pe-
1: <laughs> they are not. It was said that people who lived along the Illinois Central Line between Jackson and Water Valley would turn over in their beds at night and say, there goes Casey Jones, just by hearing that he whistle sound. He also did sound. it when he was
0: pulling into um, Memphis so that Janie would hear him and know that he was home safely,
1: which breaks my heart. Yep. Uh, So he sounded the whistle because he knew that there was no time for anybody to Mm -hmm. get out of the way and sounding the whistle would at least tell people that they needed to jump, uh, which they did. He managed he did manage to slow his speed by the time of impact from that 75 miles an hour mark down to around 35 really miles impressive an hour. it's a feat of engineering and i mean that literally like it's it's something that only an incredibly skilled engineer would have had the presence of mind and skill set to know how to do and because he stayed on board because he slowed the train he was the which only which is amazing fatality.
0: if you think about it there's a parked passenger train absolutely ahead of you There are passengers riding in the car behind you and he somehow manages like the only injuries that were reported were someone gets someone gets a broken rib. uh, Sim Webb gets a concussion and Casey Jones is horribly mangled and killed as his
1: locomotive. Yeah. Uh, His his body was actually found under the cab uh, with his his head crushed and one of his arms gone. Yikes. Uh, the the popular legend is that you know his hand was still clutching the whistle cord and brake but it 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 wasn't um he he it was not well the popular
0: legend him. that i heard i don't know if we want to sidebar on this was yeah. that uh there was so much corn that was to. spilled when those boxcars fell apart that no. corn grew up in that area for years and years yeah really
1: <laughs> okay 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 and and that was it. Uh he he was he was killed probably fairly yes, instantly.
0: For sure. So if you look at contemporary newspapers, the area ones will have small articles in the accident, but it's not a story that gains any traction until
1: until the song. Did you want to take a moment and talk about well, the song? Well, I actually
0: song? want to <laughs> Go a little more macro here and say, uh, because when we look at the story of this accident, it doesn't seem particularly compelling on the surface. I mean, it's it's like a horrible accident with a fatality and a lot of damage, but I can't overemphasize how dangerous railroad work is at this time.
1: Right. This would be the equivalent of somebody who worked in like a factory in the 1910s getting their arms ripped off and having a folk song written about them. It's like this. No, no, no. This is what you signed up right. for. Right. <laughs>
0: or for us, it would just be like the equivalent of a bad car crash, maybe. Sure. In the, it sure. happens a lot. And, you know, yeah. there's nothing particularly special about this one outside of Casey's community and coworkers and family. So two things yeah. really conspired to popularize this story and turn it kind of from an accident story into American mythology. So yeah, both of those things sure. are related to two black men who worked on the railway with Casey. And we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive because these are two really interesting guys who get overlooked by a lot of the sources that we looked at.
1: Are we going to talk about, are we going to talk about, we're Cindy going to Webb? talk about Sam, Sam Webb. Was was
0: awesome. Yeah. Uh, so Sim yes. Webb was Casey's fireman on the night of the accident and he'd worked with Casey before. Yep. He was 26 at the time of the accident, and he had kind of worked his way up, much like Casey. And after the accident, he continued on as a fireman for the Illinois Central, where he actually had a very long career. Uh, Because he survived this wreck, he went on to have a wife and family. He lived in Memphis all his life, and he dies of pneumonia in his 80s, and that's not until 1957. The account of the accident... What Casey said and did that night, the road conditions, all of that is based on Sim yeah. Webb's eyewitness account. And he goes on to speak about the accident yep. many, many times.
1: He even records. And this is important, and this is important because Sim Webb was literally the only other person right, and there. he was there like, right up
0: until it happened.
1: He, exactly.
0: So he even records an interview that I was able to find. If you want to hear his account, like his voice speaking about what happened. Yeah, it's amazing. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, so you all can enjoy that. It is super fascinating to hear him talk about this. So a lot of the information about this story comes from SimWeb, but a lot of kind of the imagination of this story and the way it caught popular attention comes from Wallace Saunders. Did you come across Wallace Saunders
1: in your research? I did. So he's an engine
0: wiper and a maintenance worker for Illinois Central. And he had known Casey since yep. they are both young adults. Uh, so in the Casey Jones biography, which, just to warn you, is super racist and gross when it comes to these two men, Wallace Saunders yep. is described as this kind of, like, Greek chorus where he has mysterious dreams before the accident, and he's involved in a mysterious death, and he has visions and so forth, yeah. and it's all written in dialect. It is really gross. Um, yeah. I couldn't read anything i couldn't find anything that backed (laughs) up his this like idea of him as this visionary who's kind of all-knowing uh but the undisputed fact that is out there is that wallace saunders was a hugely talented poet and songwriter so after casey casey jones's death he wrote a ballad about the accident that really took off and gained a lot of attention Like Sim Webb, uh, while Saunders had a long career with Illinois Central, and also like Sim Webb, there is very little information about his life outside the Fred Lee biography, which I just mentioned. Enormously problematic throughout, and especially when it comes to these (laughs) two key figures. Uh,
1: Well, it's it's that way of reducing people from being people to being a representation of something you think they represent. And I
0: don't know, Fred Lee was a friend of Casey's and a contemporary, and I think... If you read this yeah. biography, it kind of seems like he is writing it in almost this kind of, again, with the mythology kind of approach. You know, Casey's yeah. better than everyone. It, it He's is, taller it, than everyone. He's bigger than everyone. He's faster than everyone. Yeah. He's nicer than everyone.
1: It comes off as a as as almost a uh, almost a folk tale, except that the guy actually right. existed. Um, it it is not it is not a. Uh, a no, it's, source. It's definitely it not. Fred Lee has a lot of
0: <laughs> opinions and they're all in this book. Uh, yep. So Wallace Saunders wrote a folk song called The Ballad of Casey Jones After the Accident. And that is really the reason yeah. why this story is known today. This ballad was sung up and down ra- rail yards. Um, it was performed in vaudeville. It was covered by Pete Seeger, Johnny Cash, and Carl Sandberg. Did you know that when he was in his 20s, Carl Sandberg, like, had a performance act where he would go around and play uh american folk songs on his guitar for money i did you know did that that blew my that. mind he wrote no. an anthology That's... called american song bag <laughs> which is okay. out there if you would like to okay
1: <clears throat> uh i did find the quote from carl sandberg saying that casey jones the brave <laughs> engineer Uh, is, quote, the greatest ballad ever written. It's so true. Like,
0: it's a really powerful, if you read it as a poem, the original form, not the vaudeville form, which is problematic in its very own special way. Um, (laughs) But if you read it as a poem, it's really, really uh, compelling and beautiful. Um, I'd actually like to end with a quote, if that's okay. Can I read you some poetry?
2: All Uh, right. So i will
0: end with a quote from Wallace Saunders, The Ballad of Casey Jones. And this is the end of the poem. Give my love to my children. Say goodbye to my wife. Casey said just before he died. There's a lot more railroads that I'd like to ride. He said the good Lord whispered, it'll never be. The Illinois Central be the death of me. Headaches and heartaches and all kinds of pain ain't no different from a railway train. You can take your stories, noble and grand, are all just a part of a railroad man. Yeah, it's a gorgeous poem. I recommend reading it all the way through.
1: And not uh listening to the nineteen o nine Casey Jones, the rave engineer vaudeville song, no, it's so slanderous, uh, which it's so slanderous. his own widow was like strenuously objected to this. She was very offended because it sort of implies that you know uh as soon as he died, she went on and hooked up with somebody else. She never remarried no,
0: and she lived death. to her
1: eighties, yeah. She died sometime. When when did she pass away? In the nineteen sixties. She was
0: in her late eighties. I want to say she was eighty nine, and it was the early sixties, but I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So she never remarried. She certainly never gave up on. I I don't know. I yeah. The the vaudeville one is is problematic on many levels. It truly is. Um, I did want to close on the uh, the official yes, inquiry please. into the crash, the final Illinois Central accident report stated that, quote, Engineer Jones was solely responsible, having disregarded the signals given by Flagman Newbury. They found him uh, completely responsible for the crash. Now, what they said is that they had sent out Mm -hmm. the Flagman and put warning torpedoes on the rail. So warning torpedoes are, uh, you can't miss them. (laughs) And an engineer of Jones's caliber would certainly not have you know run over them and thought oh that was odd Mm -hmm. and kept going um sim webb states that he heard the torpedoes explode but they were set far too Mm. close to the thing and to his death webb maintained we never saw the flagman and we never heard the torpedoes and i
0: believe him so basically
1: i believe him over illinois central yes (laughs) Cause this was this was very clearly a uh, you know they needed they needed to hang this on somebody and uh, obviously it couldn't have been the, the, right. the company a lot of railroad historians dispute the official account and even with the fog that night and everything else most historians view it as this man did absolutely everything he could to prevent a uh, a Mm -hmm. disaster, and he nearly did that
0: is the epic American tale of Casey Jones.
1: Yeah. I do want to uh, thank our special guest for appearing with us today. So good to have
0: an expert on this. I really don't understand. It's so good to have an expert. Or trains (laughs) at all. Uh, So thank you for helping us tease out all that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please you let us You can
0: do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg?
1: For our next episode, we're going to find out what happens when a Boeing 767 loses fuel at 41,000 feet. Oh no,
0: not a plane crash.
1: It is not a plane crash. Okay, now I'm interested. For the next episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to talk about the famous Gimli Glider. I can't wait to talk to you about that.